So what I'm wanting to cover with you this morning is in a sense a synthesis, a practical conclusion to our course. Thinking about what chastity needs to look like in terms of practicality and in terms of training, um, particularly for what we offer to youth. Um, but chastity being what it is, actually most of this still applies to us um, throughout our lives um, and as celibate, as married, whatever we are. Um, so you'll see there are more pages here than we will go through this morning. Some of these pages, the last pages, are copied from materials I've given out to youth and parishes. So I just kind of give those to you as a sample of the kind of thing you can give to youth. And if I can start with kind of a general observation of the importance of having this kind of formation available in your parishes because it's in all likelihood you're going to get to a parish where this isn't the case there are places where this is the case but on average that isn't and yet we know in reality if our young people are far from the Lord in this question it's going to be very unlikely that they're going to have any coherence any ability to be with the Lord in prayer in the mass if they know that this is a whole bit of the law, their life that is divorced from that. So it's really important that we get that right for them, that we give them the opportunity, the formation to help them in this. And you're fortunate as pastors or pastors-to-be to be coming into the church at a time when actually there are already, at least here in, in America, significant resources out there to help. When I was growing up, you know, the whole spirit in the church was about getting with the world and being fashionable like the world and how much can we compromise like the world. And no vision of what to give young people, give me, to help me be different from the world in these questions. Um, so it's a much easier time for you to be a pastor. But you do need to see this as part of your vision. So if you get to a parish and nothing like this is happening, that should be one of the things you have as your vision to implement. Um, ideally, you want a young a youth group that you meet not just for them to have as a social event, but a place where you can do formation with them. So the two parishes I've been in as a pastor and another where I was an assistant, I either reformed a youth group that was there or set one up from scratch did a mixture, I gave them formation input, we had some prayer and some social time, that they need socially to mix with other young Catholics, to not feel isolated and weird. Um, ideally, you want a couple young Catholic adults that are there giving a leadership role model. But I think it's really important for them to hear from a priest about these things. Um, not just to hear from a young adult with no connection with the priesthood. You want all those things working together. And obviously it's most likely to be successful when it's also, you've got the priest, you've got the catechist, and the parents all repeating the same message. Um, anyway, so what I'm saying is there are resources, make sure that's part of your apostolic vision. So, got some notes here, what I've called chastity formation. Um, so I want to run th through on these first two pages, in a sense, the vision of what we should be aiming to achieve. And I start by asking the question, what is the problem? And the problem, pretty obvious to say, is manifold. But I want to start by noting what the, the secular world thinks the problem is. So the secular world will tell us well, there's teenage pregnancy, and there's teenage sexually transmitted diseases, and there's date rape. That they see that there is a problem there. Those are problems, but those aren't the problem. The secular solution, as I say there, is to give sex education, to teach effective contraception use, um, without seeming to note that in every country and in every region, the more you throw contraceptives at young people, the more you reduce the age of sexual promiscuity. 
and you end up increasing the spread of the very things you, they thought they were going to prevent. The secular solution, as I say there, is to empower teenage girls to say no in the feminist era. But they're doing it at the same time that they are creating a pornographic world that objectifies them. So that it, in effect, has become increasingly impossible for a girl, for a boy, as I say, to hear the no when a girl says no. And almost impossible for a girl to actually voice that. So as I say there, the secular solution just compounds the problem. So they see there is a problem, but they're just making it worse. Now my next little subheading here is called The Damage of Sexual Promiscuity. Did you all have a chance to read? So there was two pages that I'd cut and pasted from um, the internet. Oh no, it was four pages, wasn't it? Um, an article called The Damage of Sexual Promiscuity. Um, anyway, I'm just going to summarize it here in a paragraph, but it's, in a sense, just one of many examples you can find on the internet where there are actually amazing scientific data out there um, that backs, in a sense, the Catholic vision. So, the damage of sexual promiscuity. So, say that, what does modern science tell us? Well, it tells us that the first sexual encounter imprints on the person. And it does this at the level of, of hormones, at the level of the body. Something is put into the brain in that first encounter. It imprints the context. So it becomes really important. Is it imprinting a context of love and faithfulness and commitment? Or is it imprinting a context of lust and casualness, worse violence? Um, that that first encounter is imprinted into the brain. Um, to, and that matches up to the anecdotal evidence where people will sometimes talk about how they, they have these images of their first encounter that carries with them to life, through life. Now, for the woman, as I say here, the hormone oxyt ox oxytocin... Um, is released in the woman when she has sex, and it does something that bonds her to her mate. Um, and you don't need to think much about evolution to see how that benefits the species, that she is bonded to her mate, the mate's therefore going to support her in the raising of the offspring, that serves the species. You know, that doesn't, shouldn't surprise us. The problem, as I say there, is that having multiple sexual partners lowers her oxytocin levels, damages her capacity to bond with her future husband. As I say there, sexual intercourse is a significant biological event. It's simply not suited for social casualness. It's what, what's biologically best for you is to have your first sexual encounter with your first, final partner, your spouse. Whereas what's biologically bad for you is to have multiple partners. Having multiple sexual partners means that the hormonal distress that's associated with breaking up becomes biologically associated with sex. And having a later stable relationship therefore becomes difficult your body, your hormones, the, the bonding, the breaking, the, it all causes an inner instability. So that statistically, promiscuity leads to divorce later in life. Um, promiscuity thus leads to a lack of a special, unique sexual intimacy with your future wife because you've already shared with multiple partners what should have been a unique experience between you spouse. So in a that's what we'd have been saying in the church forever. Um, but now science actually is pointing to the same thing. So what's the Catholic solution? Well, as I say there, it's a different way of relating, a different way of engaging in sex. And what it needs is formation, especially in the youth, 
chastity formation for a way of living, not just sex education, which is you know all framed around the mechanics of getting it right, how to put on a condom, whatever else. Now make a contrast there, the final line there, the with the Protestants. So have you all heard of Promise Keepers? So you know, there's a website. Promise Keepers have been around a long time. They'd have chastity rings that, you know how in your Protestant service you stand up and you respond to the altar call and give your life to Jesus? You do something similar to give your life to, to chastity. Um, you make a promise, you put on a chastity ring that you would wear and keep the promise until your wedding night. Um, the problem is, because Protestants don't have a vision of nature and grace, you're just kind of trying to slap the supernatural on top of a lack of any formation in virtue, which is what we as Catholics should be able to build a better foundation. So I, I kind of point that out to you to be wary of using a Protestant resource because it, it doesn't have the depth that we've got and sometimes will be unhelpful. Um, okay, let's turn over the page, page two. So I here identify what I call the basic goals in chastity formation. So de-objectifying sex and persons. The pornography and currently common teenage sex practices treat others as sexual objects. So oral sex, anal sex, digital sex, um, it's all just an object, a thing to be for my pleasure and gratification. Whereas the solution is to relate to a person, not relate just to a body. To love a person, not to just lust after a body. Now I know I've talked to you before about the difference between continence and, and virtue with respect to chastity, but I just want to repeat the point here in this context because it is part of what would make a Catholic chastity program different from a Protestant one. So I say here two competing visions. The first, continence. So continence, what is it? It's self-control. Now self-control, obviously, is a good thing. Um, Kantian virtue, so, you know, Kant had a vision of virtue, but his vision of virtue is simply about strengthening the will to override the passions. You know, that the only good thing is a good will, um, rather similar to what we were looking at with Grisey in our last lecture, all focused on the will. And the body and the passions are just, in this vision, always treated as a problem. The rational person, as Kant would see it, doesn't live by his passions, he lives by his rational intellect instead. So the will in a continual struggle can be habituated to override the passions. I just habitually, I feel something and I ignore my feelings. I habituate myself to ignore what I feel. That the passions pull us to sin, to look at lust, you know, in a woman's body. So this Kantian vision of virtue is all about willpower. It's not about reforming and training the passions. Whereas the second vision here, I say, is self-mastery oriented towards freedom for self-gift, not just self-control. So in Thomistic virtue, virtue involves reforming the passions. So repetition of rationally guided acts forms the passions, changes the passions, trains the passions.
that the passions can become habituated in the pursuit of authentic goods, goods in right measure. For example, we semi-automatically move to the right-sized portion of food, or we semi-automatically look at a woman's face, look at her character, don't just look at her breasts and legs. And in this Thomistic vision, due to habituation, due to repetition, all three aspects of our being pull in the same direction. That my reason, my will, my passions, they all pull in the same direction. The passions aren't inherently problematic, they just need training. So as the Catechism puts it, I didn't footnote it there, that the virtuous person has put reason into his passions. So, you know, I touched on this when we looked about chastity earlier in the semester, but in this context, it gives us a foundation, a different vision of what a chastity program is going to be about. And then, kind of the last of my foundational bits of what we've wanted chastity formation program to look like, I say, is, is a positive view of sex. So I know that pre-conciliar Catholic resources often viewed sex with suspicion, such attitudes being influenced by Jansenism or Puritanism. So when we looked at pleasure earlier in the course, um, we commented on this. Whereas the theology of the body um, this approach sees sex more positively. It sees how properly habituated sex can foster self-gift, not just regulate control of pleasure. That sex per se is a gift from God, even though the residue of original sin inclines us to sin. And I say many contemporary chastity programs give youth a positive view of sex and relationships in this way. So, if you look on page three, I list there some resources. Um, I don't know how familiar you are already with some of these books I've listed. Um, how many of you have heard of Jason Everett? Yeah. So, his book, um, If You Really Loved Me, um, so this is, you know, he's now got a revised edition. Um, I've given every teenage boy in the youth groups of my parish a copy of this book. It's very readable. There's all lots of questions and answers for short concentration spans. It's, it's got um, practical things, like it's got a section I randomly turn to. Why do NFP couples have such low divorce rates, as we've talked before? Um, how to behave with a girl? What not to touch? Why? Um, it's practical, readable. Um, a book I've given each girl is similar, but because it's written by a woman, Real Love by Mary Beth Bonacci um, by Ignatius Press, more or less saying all the same things, but somehow written by a woman with a slightly different tone. My experience in giving both these books to boys and girls is the girls have tended to enjoy the woman's comments just that little bit more. Um, they're both good books. And obviously that costs money. If you're going to give every teenager in your parish that book, it costs money. Um, as I would view it, if they don't have that kind of guidance, they're not staying anyway. You're not going to get their collection money in the plate in future years. <laughs> so, you know, just as a financial matter, um, investing in the future is pretty important. Um, and I've often had to argue that with people running the finance in the parish. Um, but it isn't... It isn't much of an argument, even at a financial level. Yeah. Okay, and then I list this book here, Every Young Man's Battle. Um, now, as I note there, the problem with this book is that it's Protestant. Um, and because it's Protestant, it's sola scriptura. So they have a long, written by two people, and they have a long section in here when they're trying to discuss whether masturbation is a sin in itself. 
And they say, well, we can't find that word in the Bible. So in itself, we can't say it's a sin because the Bible never uses that word. So they speculate that it might be possible to masturbate in a non-lustful manner. So Jesus condemns lust, so that's clearly wrong, but he never uses the word masturbation. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a great example of why not to be a Protestant, you know, why sola scriptura does not work. Um, so I'd never give, yeah, go on. Does that book discuss uh, the sin of Onan at all as a possible example of, biblical example of why masturbation is wrong? I don't remember if I'm honest. I just remember them, they must have had a whole chapter discussing this question. Um, Because really, onanism only, it's only with the tradition that you've kind of got an interpretation explaining the significance of that. So if you only go by the text, I guess it's not convincing. So I'd never give a Catholic boy this book because it's going to confuse. I have um, photocopied chapter 13 from this book repeatedly and that it's got an amazing collection of just very simple practical advice on what to do, what not to do. Also talking about the science again of how, I think you've looked at a fair bit of this in the Augustine way, um, the science of how these cycles of impurity just drag us down further, but it also talks about the cycles of how to get out of that, comparing it with drug addictions. So, you know, a heroin addict does struggle to break the habit, but if he can get through a certain stage, it does become easier. And when you're hearing confessions, it's really important, not just with teenage boys, but um, sometimes with old men, that that message, it is possible to change. And yes, the first period of changing is the most difficult, but it will get easier. It is worth persevering. Okay, so those are three resources I'd particularly recommend. I list a whole bunch of others on that page um, if you want for the future. Any comments or observations thus far? How many of you would have had experience of a parish setting of these things being discussed? At all. Recipient or either, I suppose. Um, not as a recipient, but as a, a, a leader a little bit. My first year assignment here. And so that was somewhere you were sent in a parish or? Right. Do you mind me asking? So that was just a normal parish where they well, happened to be doing it? It was that. in the confirmation program, but they had a very robust presentation of this topic. Right. Which in many ways is a great context, because you're not just saying this is the only thing we talk, care about with you children. Mm -hmm. um, it's, there's a whole bunch of stuff, and this is an important part of it. Um, and what age was confirmation? Or is it sophomore in this stuff? in high school. Freshman and sophomore is two years of preparation at marriage. And yes, again, an American hasn't answered my question. <laughs> What's, what year is sophomore? Um, sorry, um, 16. 16, right, okay, okay. Yeah. So there's a, a loss that we may have lost already yes. by then. Um, which doesn't sound like we've had much experience of such things. Um, there are such things out there, though. Um, page four, um, so I'd initially thought I would make this an entire lecture in itself, but actually 
hopefully. So the question on marital foreplay, so what's permissible or not in the bedroom when you're married, I've just kind of given a one-page summary there. And just to quote what Janet Smith says there, um, the principle generally invoked is that consensual actions that culminate in intercourse are morally permissible. So anal touching, oral touching, anything that culminates in normal sex, the tradition generally speaking says that's fine. Which is different from those kind of activities aiming to replace the sexual act. Now Thomas Morrow, if you read his article, he comments on the question, or discusses the question, whether some types of foreplay just aren't dignified, that they objectify the other person, that they treat the other person as a body, not as a person. I think those are fair questions. My gut feeling is that it would be very subjective in terms of how you would evaluate that. So the, the manuals had as this basic criteria, if it ends physically normally, then it's fine. Um, So, um, I'm going to come back to page five. So, do you have any questions on that? Or my context, pastry coming across this has been in confession. So, someone will come to you in confession and they'll ask, you know, we did this, should we? And the first time I came up with this, I realized, you know, I hadn't got a clue what to say. Um, so you're not advocating necessarily including this in marriage prep? It's a good question. Almost all of the couples I've prepared have been so distant from the church <laughs> that a detail in a sense like this I wouldn't have covered. Um, Supposedly, for some couples, um, having a little bit of anal penetration, but without ejaculation and culmination, so that the act hasn't finished, is done as foreplay before concluding the act in normal vaginal intercourse. So that's what he's referring to, anal penetration as foreplay. sodomy because it doesn't end there. It doesn't replace the act. It's foreplay on its way to the conclusion of the act. So you can see, I'm guessing you'd have sympathy with Thomas Morrow's um, mm. critique of that. Um, <laughs> so the first time I came across this in confession, my reaction was very overly cautious um, or overly forbidding because I'd never thought of this. So I forbade more than the manual tradition did. The manual tradition says it's okay if it's heading towards its proper conclusion. So my gut feeling still would be as a pastor to not be more strict 
than the tradition. I think you could throw in Thomas More's point of, so if it's the man talking to you, to ask him, okay, what you've described physically, there are respected authors that permit, but are you relating to your wife just as an object, or is this personal? Is she enjoying this or not? Um, but as a pastor, I would limit myself by the tradition. To not try to be more Catholic than the tradition. Now we can obviously seek to reform and improve the tradition, but if the tradition has permitted something, I'm cautious in, in forbidding it. summarizing the tradition, as does Janet Smith. So I'm basically quoting both of them to indicate that they're both saying the same thing. Um, he does acknowledge that although, as he phrases it, there's nothing inherently wrong with anal penetration as foreplay towards vaginal sex, he does say, as is the case, that anal sex brings with it all kinds of infection risks particularly anal sex before vaginal sex is kind of the worst infection risk. Um, obviously all that's worse with promiscuity as opposed to just a married couple. Um, I think you're, if what you're saying is that saying this to a couple is likely to confuse them rather than guide them, I think that's probably a fair point to make. In the negative, if somebody asks you the question, I would certainly feel not to be stricter than the church. Um, I gather where some of this kind of becomes more relevant is men who struggle with impotence, that therefore different degrees of foreplay become more and more needed in order for him to perform, um, which he's wanting to do but his body isn't properly reacting and the foreplay enables that. Um, which might then in a sense serve the woman as well. I'm kind of glad you're uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable with it as well. Um, um, 
phrase that again as I did, if someone in confession says I've done this and they ask, I think to be aware what the manuals would say is their standard answer on this question. I don't think we're going to get a more definitive answer than I've quoted here, but um, just to at least give you a bit more knowledge than I had. At the end of his article, Father Morrow asked for responses to his article, which was written 10 years ago. Do you know if there was much of a, yes, we should ban all foreplay sort of banners being shaken or? or Not that I'm aware of. Um, and it's very difficult when you read periodicals to gauge how they're responded to. Um, so for a few things that we're going to be looking at next semester, I've been trying to assess what's a majority opinion among some debated opinions. And sometimes the fact that lots of people are writing about it is because they're all in the minority position, <laughs> not because um, of the opposite. Um, And in the history of theology, 10 years is nothing as a response. Um, to be honest, his article is the most coherent treatment I've seen anywhere on this topic. Uh, Griset's, that I also quote at the top of the page there, they refer to it in terms of what they call incomplete marital acts. So it's an incomplete marital act heading towards a complete marital act. So that's what foreplay is. It's not complete, but it's heading towards it. Um, the risk of stating the obvious or being overly explicit, um, a couple can be aiming at foreplay towards a complete act, um, and he comes prematurely. Um, so that hasn't been their intention therefore it's not blameworthy. But if they know that actually every time we do this, this happens, um, you know, then it, it becomes a little less coherent to say we didn't intend it. Because um, it would then be a form of onanism of a type of contraception. in which the man gets his pleasure and she gets pretty much nothing, um, which is pretty much how men like things in, in many respects. Um, but, yeah. Are we okay with moving along? As I say, that, that's about as definitive as we're going to get. Um, okay, I want, can we turn to page seven? I'm going to come back to page five in a bit. But um, so page seven and eight um, is my summarizing of um, part of this book, Every Young Man's Battle. By the way, there's a sequel called Every Young Woman's Battle. Um, I mean, I'm not a young woman to know how relevant it is, but. It certainly sounded, I, I've been through both books, that sounded good and practical and useful, but with a different focus. Um, so young girls will be much less likely to have masturbation as an issue. They're not as visually driven, they're not as selfishly driven as men are um, in terms of the self-seeking goes with the, the pleasure of masturbation. But it can be an issue for girls as well. Um, and because in our culture it's something they're even being encouraged to do by secular sex education, my guess is that's going to increasingly be something you come across as confessors. But for girls it's much easier to overcome than for guys. And I think 
as I think I've said before, with girls it's much more often linked with low self-esteem. So, you know, a girl feels lousy about herself, she looks in the mirror and she's ugly. Um, a guy looks in the mirror and he's ugly and he doesn't feel as bad about it as a girl tends to. Um, masturbation somehow is a, a false hope, a false pleasure in that self, low self-esteem. Okay, so page seven here. Um, I'm trying to summarize for you the kind of basic scientific application or application of the science that they just talk about in this book. So, so the title of this page, Reforming the Sex Drive, Some Science-Based Observation and Practical Advice. So the key thing, if you're not, or if you've not explicitly focused on it, that the sex drive isn't fixed in its amount. We can increase it, and it becomes difficult to control, or decrease it. That every healthy man has a sex drive, but in its natural state, it's manageable. But the more you give in to the problem, the drive increases, and it becomes very difficult to problem. So there is a vicious circle. When we do certain things, the body gets a chemical high in response to sexual pleasure. With that, the sex drive increases and we struggle to control it. So viewing a sexual image doesn't just affect us then, it increases this drive for future days, if not weeks. Thinking a sexual thought, entertaining a daydream, similarly increases the drive for days, if not weeks. And even more so, masturbation and its sexual pleasure increases the drive period of time following. And all of this causes a vicious circle so that it becomes increasingly difficult to be pure because we've caused our sex drive to increase. As I say, that means our current impurity is the accumulation of many individual previous impure acts. So that's the negative way of looking at the science. plus side, the virtuous circle. Every time we starve, so this is the language they use, they use an image of a, a wrestler, and you feed the wrestler and he becomes bigger and stronger. You starve the wrestler, you're out to fight, and he becomes smaller and weaker. Every time we starve our sexual appetite, our sex drive decreases, eventually down to its natural state. Starving the eyes, Every time we refrain from looking impurely, our sexual fantasies lack something to think about and our sex drive decreases. Starving the mind. Every time we refrain one thought, our drive decreases slightly and becomes easier in the future. Starving ourselves of the pleasure. Every time a man who is addicted to masturbation refrains himself, his sex drive decreases slightly and becomes easier the next time. So that each single victory in the battle makes future victories much easier to achieve. So I summarize that this is progressive, that a man in serious habitual sin will be able to drop his sex drive to be easily controllable. So they give, with scientific reasons, a specific time scale here. So they, they say in six weeks. And whether six weeks is long or short, depends on how you look at it. Um, so they say even in one week, you'd sense a difference. Um, but they warn that a young man will likely hit a wall at three weeks, like any addiction. But if he pushes through that wall and perseveres, it will then become much easier. So as I said a few minutes ago, if you compare it, you know, I've never been on cocaine withdrawal, but um, if you've got an addiction to hard drugs, it's hard to go, go cold turkey to come off them. The, the process of it coming out of the system 
is pretty violent, unpleasant. This thing of hitting a wall at a certain time has a scientific basis. But if you can push through it, it will become easier. And for you as future confessors, it's worth knowing that, knowing the science, so that you can say that as a word of encouragement to somebody. I would say, practically speaking, my experience counseling young boys in this, and young men, is that those who have this addiction, it will almost always be some some pivotal moment that will trigger a change. It might be a good confession, it might be a youth retreat, um, that there are moments of grace the Lord gives. And I think that also is a, a thing to say, that you're here in confession, you're saying this, this may be the, the moment God is giving you the grace to, to change in this. Um, ask him for it to be that moment. And there's been others who've had this addiction who the only way they've been able to break it is um, a commitment to regular daily mental prayer. That it's only that you've got this love for pleasure has to be filled with another love. That to just do the right thing with a minimal connection with him is very hard. That it needs at least a, a prolonged period of time where their intensity with the Lord in prayer is a big block of time in their day so that another love replaces this base love and enables them to let go of it. And at the risk of repeating myself, it, this is really important for you to see as part of your time, your effort, your vision. Um, with young men to, in a sense, be looking for opportunities with this. There'll be many young men that you will sense will kind of close down any discussion. Um, well, if they're not willing to talk about it, there's not much point in trying to force them. But if they're even a little receptive, um, there's a whole different way of living that we have to offer. And we've got to see that as, as our purpose. Do you have a... No. Okay, the last page I'm going to talk you through is page five. So these are summarizing some of the practical advice to be giving to teenagers, um, giving to, to young, young Catholics. So I start with the question there, courting or dating? So there's this, in English, very old-fashioned word, courting. Um, it aimed at doing something utterly different to this modern thing of dating. So, I say a key question to have youth asking is, do you want to engage in behavior that will be fun now, or do you want to build behavior aiming at a long, stable, happy future marriage? They're pretty much all young people now, they see so many of the grown-ups failing to have a long, stable relationship. They know that's what they want, most of them at least. Um, we have a product to help them in that goal. So contemporary dating. See, this is an activity aimed at the now, romantic relationship in the short term. And I make the point in italics that this concept does not exist in the Christian tradition. So my last seminary, um, one of the seminarians did his um, STB dissertation on chastity training in the tradition. So comparing programs like this with what the tradition, what the saints say about 
virtue, about chastity, about how a young man and a young woman are to behave together. You don't find anywhere dating. Um, you're only meeting a young woman when you're at a stage of life when you're looking for someone to settle down with. Looking for someone just to have fun with now. The tradition doesn't do that. And I think there's a reason that actually that whole pattern of relationships just breeds in instability um, rather than... Goodness, when I was young, the talk was all about the importance of experimenting, the importance of experience, the, um, the importance of finding out. Um, it just breeds instability. Um, now, how receptive parents are going to be to that message, how receptive teenagers are going to be to that message is going to vary. So I'd be hesitant in how hard I would push that. But I would think for any of them, the later age-wise they are dating, the better it's going to be for them. Sorry, so back to my notes here. Courting, I say... This activity, courting, is aimed at finding a future spouse. Say so that not everybody courted is equally serious, but anyone courted is only courted because you are seeking, testing for the long term. You know, this is someone I know I'm not going to be with for the long term. Why am I hooking up with them? Just to have a good time now? Why would I be doing that? You know, when I was at university, I can remember being, even the months when I was applying to the seminary, um, it being seen as normal to be dating even in that period. Um, which, looking back, I mean, that was just treating a girl as, as a plaything, as romance, as just a thing to, to toy with. Um, So what is the whole activity aimed at? It should be aiming, thinking, structuring itself, limiting itself on a future happy life. My future spouse is out there somewhere. I'm going to live now in a way that's going to train me to be ready to be with that person. Okay, then I ask the question, what is a suitable girlfriend? And this is a, a question to put to teenagers girlfriend, boyfriend. Um, she shares your values. Um, she needs to share your goal. So chastity, purity, marriage, not just the goal of let's have a good time now and not think about how it will affect our future relationships. So look for a girl who shares your values, not just a girl who's pretty or fun. And then a point I make especially with um, young adults actually, um, don't waste time in an unsuitable relationship. So say, time with a dead-end girlfriend might stop you meeting the girl who could be your future wife. Um, the time with a dead-end girlfriend would stop you meeting Miss Wright. So don't be like so many people today who 10 and 20 years in a dead-end relationship um, and only then tried to find somebody else to marry when it's too old. You know, too old to have children or too old to find the right person. Um, you know, why am I not going to leave the priesthood at 50? Because it's pretty hard to find a good wife now. You know, the older you get, the more your options become limited. Um, and yet there are lots of people out there that do this thing that, well, I want to be happy now, this guy I'm with, well, that's kind of the only option for now. Well, the longer you're with this short-term thing, that's stopping you being open to the right guy. So if the right guy walks in the room right now, you're not available for him. Then a word there about boundaries. Um, 
So, you know, both of the, the books, um, Jason Everett and Mary Beth Bonacci, talk about this a lot. Um, if a couple are aiming to be chased, they need to talk with each other what that means physically. To know that when they are getting passionate, they're not going to be thinking properly then. They've got to have thought that through already. Which includes thinking, well, if we start kissing in this location, in her bedroom, um, that's going to be more difficult to remain chaste than kissing in a semi-public place. Now I specify that more over the page. So page eight, page six rather, is a sheet I've handed out for teenagers. Um, and so I make the point there that when you're married, there's a whole bunch of things that are fully appropriate. They're, they're good, they're right, that you should be wanting those things. But just because they're right for marriage doesn't mean they're right for you now. And that actually to be ready for marriage you need to not do these things now. Um, can you see the petting section? So on the right, actually the biggest block there. Um, just to read what I said there. Why is petting often wrong? Because it awakens a desire it should only be satisfied in sex. It awakens a desire that should only be satisfied when you're married. Mary Beth Bonacci describes this contradiction like this. I love you so much, I'm going to make you want something I'm not going to give you. Um, so that that's a way of phrasing what you're aiming not to be doing. That yes, that would be suitable in marriage, but if you're aiming now to not be going there yet, you want to also aim to not do those things that are going to make it very hard to, to not do that. Um, completely different scenario uh, in marriage with pornography. I don't think we directly, or I directly referred to this scenario before. But So you will hear this in confession, but just to be describing this to you now, that you know there are lots of married men out there who in, on one level have a happy enough married life with the bedroom, but if they have an addiction to pornography, they'll be downstairs masturbating with the computer. And then when they go upstairs to their wife, who is waiting for them in the bedroom, they've got nothing left to give. I remember talking about this in a talk once that I then, on my podcast, appeared, um, and a married man that day getting back to me saying, you know, that, that exactly describes my life. Um, what's wrong? I know this is the, the pornography. My wife would want me to be available, but I'm not because after the pornography use, I've got nothing left to give her. Um, so if we want to help marriages, we need to talk about the problem of pornography. I'm not going to talk through it, but just to draw your attention, pages 10 and 11 of my notes.
So, um, pages 10 and 11 are two sides of a handout I've repeatedly given out. Um, it aims to give practical steps of what to do when you're faced with the temptation to impurity, not panic, an, an immediate no, a brief prayer, distracting your mind to something else, filling your mind with something else. You know, you can't stop yourself thinking about something. The more you say, I will not think about this, the more you're thinking about it. You have to have something else to put in your mind. Either a pious image of the Lord on the cross, either um, an entertaining image of a, a good movie you watched or a novel you're reading, something to think about. Um, or even it can be a work problem, but something that distracts you from the thing that the temptation. And I think ages ago when we talked about the virtue of chastity, I talked about the virtue of what St. Thomas calls play or games. That we need to have entertainment, we need to have rest for the soul if we live in a state of boredom in our soul, purity is going to be very difficult. So we need to have habitually that rest, that recreation. You know, the, the word recreation means to recreate ourselves, to make ourselves new. We need to know ourselves well enough to know what do I do that restores me? What do I do that leaves me feeling satisfied? St. Thomas says, um, pleasure is rest for the soul. That my body needs to rest. My soul needs these bits of proper pleasure that just calm, rest the soul. So that my soul isn't grasping for some other kind of pleasure and ending up inappropriately rooting for impurity. And when we in pride say, well, I'm just going to focus on my work, I'll just get this done without realizing I need to have re relaxation. I need to plan, structure my life so that I'm satisfied in soul and in body. Um, then these things are going to be a bigger problem for us. Final questions, comments, observations? I'm wondering, outside of youth group, marriage, prep, and those case-by-case -case scenarios where people come to speak to you, right. what might you be able to share from your experience about how you led Catholics to grow in a deep appreciation for these topics, especially those who are already married? One thing I think is in our preaching, so you don't need to be explicit in your preaching to refer to something where people know what you're talking about, which is a way of indicating, if you want to talk to me, I'm available. That there is a message to hear so that we can allude to that in our sermons. Um, the other thing, so both parishes I was pastor in, I had a men's group, um, so, if you just have a generic group, generally speaking, men don't come. Um, you know, you've got lots of groups in the parish filled with old ladies, which is fine. We want them, yes. But if we want to get men, we have to have a group just for them. And then they think, oh, this is for me, and I'll, I'll turn up. Um, so the first parish, whereas longer, we... So I, I'd give them a formation talk, so therefore I could cover things like this. And even when I was talking about pride or talking about anger, or I could weave these things around it. Um, then we'd have a little prayer and then we'd go to the, the pub together. Um, and some of the men came for the pub um, and endured the talk, but... Um, and there was a parallel group for women as well. 
and I suppose I was, I was also always aware that I wasn't doing enough but that was at least I felt something I was doing and time wise um, the parish I was for nine years I left there feeling I was beginning to have raised up those that could have continued that without after me to have formed people who knew where to look themselves for resources that they could lead um, even if they didn't have feel confident to give talks themselves. Okay, so just to close, the, the importance of seeing this as part of your pastoral vision. We have a message. You know, the world is broken in these things. People are hurting with these things. We're the ones who've got a different way of life to offer. We've got to be clear that we know we've got this product. They need it, even if they don't realize they need it. And in all kinds of different forms, we've got to be looking for a way to sell it.